Good morning, everybody. So we are entering in today to uh, what would officially be considered the last session uh, of our membership series. Next week, we're going to talk about what is Reformed theology, because that was some of the questions that have been coming in. We're also going to talk about who is Acts 29. We're an Acts 29 church. So for those of you that are visiting, just to kind of catch you up to speed, we have been in a seven-part series entitled Take Up Your Cross, Taproot Church's Membership Philosophy. And we are, like Darren said, revamping our membership. We're looking forward to the fall. And so all through the summer, uh, there will be opportunity now for you to listen to these sermons. These sessions are going to be going into a small handbook. And so if you are not ready yet to become a covenant member of this church after having sat through these sessions, you can feel free this fall to pick up one of the handbooks. And when the handbooks come out, you'll be able to read through what we believe, who we are, all of those types of things. And so, uh, very exciting season for us. Uh, we want to just continue to, to push forward on mission here at the church. And so, uh, as we get ready to go into the summer, it's a great season for us to be considering where we're at and looking forward, looking forward to the fall uh, when we get moving. So, happy Father's Day to everybody. How many dads are in here today? All right. All right. Awesome. Me too. Yeah, let's give a round of applause to our dads. Yeah, in a world where dads are abandoning their families, uh, it's so wonderful to know that we have a perfect father in heaven who never abandons us. He leaves us. He guides us. He directs us. He cares for us. And so we're going to pray to him right now. We're going to jump right in. Today's session uh, will be just a little bit longer than normal, uh, as I've been sharing every week. Uh, not membership longer. The membership series sessions have been long. I heard a collective, oh my gosh, how can this get any longer grown? <laughs> uh, Longer than our normal sermons. And then next week, we actually will be returning to more normal length sessions. Uh, reminding you guys that we're not doing communion on these Sunday mornings, um, but we're doing Q&A afterwards. And so if you have questions that you would like answered, please write those questions down and we will take care of those questions. Try to answer them as best we can in the Q&A time. Let's pray. Let's pray for our dads. And uh, let's just continue to pray for grace. Father, by faith, we pray. We ask that our hearts would unite with yours. And Lord, as we go through the summer now, people vacationing, backpacking, spending time together outside as the weather clears up, we pray that you would be shaping our hearts and forming our minds to serve in the South End. Father, we're praying that we would be a missionary people who exalt you, who worship you, who trust you in every way. Lord, as we wrap up this membership series, we're praying that you would be stirring many to membership, that hearts and minds would be united to you. Father, that you would be uniting us together as a family, being loved by you and loving you. And so we exalt you this morning. We sing your praises, and as we look, Lord, now into your word and into the disciplines that you have given to us as a means of grace, may we continue to grow for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of quick review, at this point, we've gone through six sessions, and 
I haven't mentioned this before, but it's helpful to see it in this framework of head, heart, and hands. Our first sessions for us as covenant members were based on the head. What do we know? And so we talked about how we want to be a missionary people that are looking to renew the culture. And we do that via the God that we believe in. And we know that God through the Bible. So we talked about the disciples Bible, the disciples God, and the disciples gospel. These are all things that are knowledge for us to gain and grow in. Now that knowledge also has a transformative power that moves our hearts and transforms our hearts and changes who we are. And so we spent time talking about the disciples' identity and the disciples' community. Those aspects of that internal transformation that has happened, where God has caused us to be born again by the living word. We no longer base our identities on what the world bases its identities on. We no longer have a false identity and idols that we worship building ourselves up in things that this world builds itself up in. But now we build ourselves up in being adopted sons and daughters of God, united together as one community. So you have head, you have heart, and then you have the hands. All of these things, the knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of God, transformation of the heart brings about an effective work in the world through us. There are things that we now do in response to who God is and what he has done in us. And so for our final session this morning in this membership series, we want to look at the disciples' disciplines. The disciples' disciplines. Now I've given it my own definition here. The disciples' disciplines. What is a discipline? What are the things that we do in response to what we know about God and what God has done in us? Disciplines or means of grace, as the old theologians would call these activities, are, in my definition, a set of behaviors, actions, and conduct given by God that lead to deeper knowledge And greater heart transformation through the gospel. Let me read that to you one more time. The disciplines are a set of behaviors, actions, and conduct given by God that lead to deeper knowledge and greater heart transformation through the gospel. Let's talk here for a little bit about some very important things before we actually get to the definitive marks or the definitive disciplines of healthy disciples. As we've talked about head knowledge and heart transformation, and now moving towards the works of the hands, it is so important that we understand where the disciplines come from and why we engage in them. So let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, the notion of disciplines has a very negative connotation in our culture. I would wager to guess that the minute I say discipline, for some of you, you imagine some nun with a ruler smacking you on the knuckles. <laughs> Possibly discipline for you conjures up the, the, the horrible moment when the chocolate cake is put in front of you and you with great discipline. You exercise discipline as you say, no, I'll pass on the cake. And it's this, it's negative, it's horrible, right? The disciplines 
in Christianity are actually a gift. As I said before, the old theologians called these actions, these activities, these these codes of conduct means of grace. They were actions and activities that are given to the people of God as a gift to grow them in their knowledge of God and to increase the exponential transformation of their hearts by God's grace. So we must not view the disciplines as drudgery, as a negative thing that we must be doing as Christians. But first and foremost, the disciplines of Christianity, the means of grace are just that. They're gifts to us to be received by us and walked by God's grace through us. Now, I want you to understand something about disciplines. They are universal, whether negative or positive, whether Christian or secular. All of us are engaged in some sort of disciplines. And we are always engaging in disciplines that are leading us towards either what we want to be or a goal that we want to achieve or something that we want to have. But all of humanity is operating in some sort of disciplinary manner to gain something for themselves. I'll give you a couple examples. If health and body image is a priority in your life, then you will exercise the disciplines of healthy eating, saying no to the chocolate cake, and going to the gym on a daily rhythmic basis. The goal of health And body image responds, you respond to that goal by developing disciplines that get you to that goal. For the career man, the career woman. You want to grow in your career. You want to be an expert in your career. And so you will exercise the disciplines of timeliness and hard work. You will grow and you will study in the areas of expertise so that your bosses and your managers will notice who you are so that you can gain the goal, be who you want to be as a response to what you want to be, where you want to go, what you want to have. You respond by exercising disciplines. For the stay-at-home parent, you exercise the discipline of waking up, getting out of bed, putting on some sort of normal clothing other than pajamas, (laughs) making some breakfast, setting the standard of cleanliness and order in your home because you want your children to be well-dispositioned and societally normal. And so you exercise the disciplines and disciplines in all of these scenarios, whatever your goal is, whatever gain you are going after, whoever you want to be, think with me this morning, brother, sister, friend, what disciplines are you engaged in? Because disciplines are universal and disciplines are a response to something. They are a response and a desire to gain something. We exercise disciplines based on whatever we want the most. We will be more disciplined in the areas that we consider more of a priority, more of a value to us. Oswald Chambers in his little devotional on June 7th, I pulled this quote from it. Chambers says, it is not the thing that we spend the most time on that molds us most. The greatest element that shapes us the most is the thing that exerts the most power over us. 
And so we must ask ourselves as Christians, what am I exercising the greatest disciplines in to gain? What are my prioritized goals and desires? And how is my life reflecting in a disciplined manner what I'm going after? Very important that we search our hearts because the purpose of a disciple, the goal of a disciple is to be loved by God. How much better does it get than that? What is God's plan for your life? To be loved by him. What is God's will for your life? To be unadulterated, adored by him, cared for by him, provided for by him. God's purpose, the ultimate goal of the disciple, the greatest gain of a disciple is the knowledge of God, his gospel, his grace, and his love. Now, we've talked about the difference between the crowds and the disciples through this series that in the Gospel of Mark are clearly delineated. Opponents of Jesus, crowds who followed Jesus, but Jesus was not their end goal. Jesus was not their priority. Jesus was not their purpose. And the disciples of Jesus who made Jesus the end of their life, the means of their life, the strength of their life, the goal of their life. And so if our purpose as disciples is to know God, when the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? They answer it by saying, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that is our purpose, how do the disciplines of our lives respond? What is our response to God's love? God's grace, God's mercy, God's goodness. Now, here's how the Apostle Peter puts it. Listen carefully. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, he gives to us our purposes and what God has done for us, and then he admonishes a response of a disciplined life, various actions and activities and codes of conduct as a response to who God is, As a means of knowing more of God and growing in more of God's grace. Peter puts it this way. By his, that's God's, by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. Now, Peter says this. In view of all this, Peter says, in light of God having given us, given us everything for living a godly life, In light of the promises that he'll never leave you or forsake you. In light of the promises that he is so infinitely in love with you that he would send his son to die for you. In light of the promises that every sin, every fault, every transgression is wholly and completely forgiven. 
in light of eternal life that each of you will enter into given to you as a free gift in light of eternal life where there is no pain, no tears, no fears, no more hurts in light of eternal life where suffering and the confusion and the questions are all answered in light of all of this. Peter then says, in view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. Live rightly, Peter says. And moral excellence with knowledge. Peter says, grow in the knowledge of who this God is. How gracious he is. How much he loves you. How much he cares for you. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with patient endurance. And patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love for one another. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the warning. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. Forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Did you guys hear that very nuanced aspect? Peter says, for those of us that are not exercising the disciplines of Christianity. It's not because we're bad Christians. It's because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. We've forgotten how good God is. We are no longer responding to who God is. We are no longer responding to grace. Something has trumped God's place, God's provision, God's goodness, God's love. Something has reprioritized in our center of attention. And now the disciplines of our lives are reprioritized as we respond to a lesser God, a false God. And Peter warns all of us as believers That we can become short-sighted or we can be blinded to who God is. And so there's this, God has done all of this response relationship in humanity that is an ongoing process until the day that we die. And if you truly want to understand how to develop the disciplines of Christianity, I'll put it this way. If you never read your Bible ever again, you never share the gospel with a single person ever again, you never pray a single prayer even for the rest of your life, you never attend a Sunday gathering, the gospel is so scandalous that you are still as pure and perfect in Christ as if you were doing all of these things and more. It seems to me that when you... when you Understand the breadth of the scandal of the gospel, that it is so not about what you do, but that Christ has done it all for you. The only right response is, I want to know more of that. I want to be with God's people. I want to know his word. I want to talk to him about these things. And to the degree that we know that will be the degree that we respond with disciplines. The more disciplined we are in our life of response to the gospel, the, no, the more we're going to know the gospel. And it's not a vicious circle. It's a benevolent circle of grace. I want to know more of God. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I just learned that. Now I want to know more. I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to be with God's people more. I'm going to serve more. Now I've known more. And, I, and it goes this way. And so, as members of Taproot Church, if you're considering covenant membership, this is key for us. 
This is key that we are all growing in the basic disciplines of Christianity as a response to the gospel. Are we all tracking with that? Is everybody following with that? Okay. Next warning that we need to be careful of. If the disciplines of Christianity become the focus in a church and the gospel is lost, these are the factors or these are the results that will come from that. Licentiousness, legalism, and a lack of love. Let me explain it this way, licentiousness. If, if a church loses the gospel and the behavior of the church becomes the focus, what the church is doing and not doing then there's two results, licentiousness or legalism. Let me give to you a quote before I give more definition on these. David Benner, Christian psychologist, great author, he writes, Discipline, spiritual or otherwise, is a good servant but a bad master. It is not the summum bonum, the supreme good. When it is valued in and of itself, the disciplined life easily leads to rigidity and pride. What Benner is saying is, When the disciplines themselves become just an end rather than a means to an end, they result in rigidity or pride, or as I've put it here, licentiousness and legalism. Let me give you examples of this. If you forget the gospel and your Christianity is solely focused on doing good things, I'm trying to be a good Christian is the way that you speak of your life with God. It will end in either licentiousness or legalism, and it will end in licentiousness for two reasons. The first reason, licentiousness, the first reason is because as you try to be a good Christian, you will find that you fail over and over and over. I didn't read my Bible yesterday. I didn't come to the Sunday gathering. I was really having a bad day and I didn't go to missional community. I haven't prayed for a couple weeks. I did not like that song, so I did not sing along with it. And, and you find that you, you fail in your disciplines of being a good Christian. I didn't share the gospel. I didn't pray for my neighbor. I didn't love my enemy. I didn't. And if the end of your Christianity is your behavior and the disciplines and the actions of your Christianity, eventually you'll reach a point of despair. You will find that you cannot fulfill a righteous life by the works that you try to accomplish. And you'll throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm done with all of it. This is why the kids that grow up in legalistic churches without the gospel graduate, hit the college road, and Christianity goes right down the tubes. They never had Christ. They had behavior and behavior modification. It's why at a church like Taproot, we are praying so fervently for all these babies. And my little girl is 11 now. We're trying to implement missional communities that are gospel-centered so that we're training our children and our preteens and our teens to go into the college campuses, not with this set of behaviors that they must adhere to, but with the gospel so that they don't throw their hands up in despair saying, I've never been able to live as a good Christian, so I'm not going to anyway. Now, the second cause of licentiousness in this case Is just good old homegrown sinful idolatry. What do I mean by that? In cultural Christianity, it is very easy to have a Christian appearance, but be serving other gods. And so if other gods, such as money, materialism, success, relationships, pride, fame, Fear of man. If other gods have usurped King Jesus, 
all of your time, all of your calendar, all of your budget will be reprioritized around that small g, God. You'll tag in the name of Jesus on the end of your prayers, but Jesus is not the center. And so Bible reading is time-consuming. Missional community is an expenditure that takes away from your ability to get to your true God that you want to serve and discipline yourself to gain. And so we must check our hearts, respond to the love of God. When God begins to usurp those various idols and false gods, those points of despair where we're just saying, I can't do this. I can't be a good Christian. This is when we respond to the gospel and licentiousness is turned to love. When we hear that God says, it's okay. That's why I sent my son to live for you as your representative. Trust him. Grow in your faith in that. Licentiousness is turned to love. I just want to respond to you, Jesus, in love. My God, the false gods that I've been going after that have been causing licentiousness in me, they don't sacrifice themselves for me. They don't give to me. They don't promise to be eternally with me. It's when we see God that we respond to God in love and idolatry is reduced. Not by us buckling down saying, all right, I'm going to get rid of my idols and I'm going to be a better Christian. No, love for Jesus as a response to Jesus' love to us is what transforms our disciplines and our behavior. Now, this second category is dangerous because it looks so good. Legalism looks so right and so full of light. I can tell you that over the years, I have fought this as much as I possibly can with every ounce of my being. As a brand new baby Christian, having never been in the church, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I walk into this system of behavior modification of which everything in my life was antithetical to, but I knew Jesus loved me, but I sure did not want to fit into their mold. I've spent my life and we as Christian disciples should spend our lives fighting the pride and the judgmentalism that legalism produces. If our behavior becomes the center of our existence, if our behavior becomes the end rather than the means, then we can develop a very judgmental, look at my life, look how I live. You shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be doing that. You should follow the way that I live. Legalism versus I love you. I know why you're living that way. You're not, you're looking for love. You're looking for acceptance. You're looking for applause. Jesus applauds you. Jesus loves you. Jesus is with you. That's how I'm being set free from my addictions. That's how I'm being set free from my behaviors. That's how I'm being set free from the self-destructive things that I've done through love. And so licentiousness and legalism are two checkpoints that we must look to in our hearts. Are we responding to the gospel with these disciplines? Now, the final thing that I want to say before we actually get into the disciplines this morning, and there's five of them, is this. This is, this is just... Real deal, life. The disciplines sometimes are just a flat out duty. They just are. My brother just competed in his first half marathon. I gave him a call this last week to congratulate him. And I asked him a question. I said, Troy, tell me, what's your training like in preparing for a half marathon? Troy lives in Coeur d'Alene. He's, I mean, he gave this deep guttural, oh, <laughs> Four o'clock in the morning, long runs in two feet of snow. 
ice-cold swims, long bike rides after the kids are in bed. It's drudgery. It's dreary. It's dutiful. Troy, why do you do that? (laughs) And his honest response was, I don't know why I do that. (laughs) But then he went on to say, but you know what? It's the competitor in me. There's just got to be a release. And so all of that dutiful training leads to delight. And delight comes at the end of the race. You've run the race. You've put in your training. You've come across the finish line. Anybody that's in in any sort of athletic situation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're heading to the gym. You've got that stern look on your face. I've just got to get through this. I've just got to make it through. Crossfitters in here are just like, yes, I totally know what you're talking about. 15 minutes after the wad is over, you rise up delighted. The champion, right? Duty. We must recognize that the disciplines of Christianity in seasons will be a duty. We are remiss if we find ourselves thinking that every morning we're going to wake up and we're going to have gospel clarity and angelic vision and spirit-empowered understanding and we're going to leap to our Bibles like little lambs, open them up and rejoice in Leviticus chapter (laughs) 7. And to our faces we will go. It's so easy and wonderful. The spirit is all around me and Jesus, you've given me so much. I'm going to pray for the next three hours as if it's nothing. And I'm going to wake up Sunday morning and the children are all going to smile. It's going to be easy getting there on time, getting everybody. We're not going to fight or squabble on the way to the church. We're going to show up with our smiley faces because we are responding to the gospels with the disciplines. No, much of Christianity is training for a marathon. You get up, you get out of bed, you know that there is a time coming. There is delight coming, but it comes through the duty of doing the disciplines. There are going to be many seasons as you grow, and there are a lot of young believers in this church, and I just want to give you a heads up. There will be long extended seasons where you will be confused, and it will be dry, and God will seem so far from you and so removed from you. And it is in those times that by faith we respond with the dutiful disciplines of Bible reading and prayer, attending the gatherings and worshiping, intentionally being in community, sharing the gospel, though in that moment we're confused and not sensing or being moved in our hearts by the reality of the gospel. And it is in those times of duty that God is growing us leaps and bounds in the knowledge of who he is. And there will come seasons and times where just through the dutiful days of prayer and word and worship and fellowship with the saints and mission and obedience, God will break open on us. And give us those hilltop moments, those mountaintop experiences where we say, I see you again. I understand the gospel so clearly. Eternal life is real. And then he sends us back into the valley and we respond to what we've seen and heard and understood and experienced with the long, slow, steady obedience in one direction, as Eugene Peterson puts it, of the disciplines of Christianity. So, as we get into these five disciplines this morning... Check our hearts. I want to say this. Each of us are disciplining ourselves towards something. And as Christians, you should be disciplining yourself towards doing a great job in your career. 
You should be the greatest employee of your company, doing the hardest work with the best ideas, committing the most time for the glory of God, and not usurping your priorities, not letting those disciplines usurp the disciplines of following your God. We should be taking care of our bodies. We should be eating healthy. We should be exercising self-control and exercising at the gym for the glory of God, to bring glory to his name. It changes everything for us. We should be getting out of bed as stay-at-home parents, raising our children for the glory of God, but not as our identity. So our disciplines don't change. We do all these things as the world does, but we do them for a different reason. And then what drives ultimately all of those healthy disciplines are these disciplines of Christianity. And I'm going to give to us five. The lists on this could be virtually exhaustive. I've tried to compress it down into five basic disciplines, all of which I think we will find ourselves saying, wow, I need to grow in that. And I want to with every one of them, bring you back to the gospel so that these disciplines will be a growth in the gospel. First of all, this morning, the discipline of prayer. This is pretty much impossible to exhaust the importance of prayer and responding to the gospel and responding to God in prayer. Prayer is the very air that we breathe as Christians. Prayer is what moves and shapes and changes our lives, our perspectives. And the Bible teaches us that prayer is what moves and shapes and changes the lives of others around us and through us. We cannot negate the importance of prayer. But before we go down this road where most of you that have been Christians for a long time are already shrinking in your seat saying, Oh man, oh no, the discipline of prayer. I have not been praying. I want to set your hearts at ease. I think that in Christianity there is what I've come to call the unicorn. And we're all looking for the unicorn. We're looking for the unicorn in our marriages, you know, because we, we see unicorns out there. They appear to be unicorns, right? That marriage is so perfect and they're so happy and they're always smiling and they must, they never get in tiffs. Why is it? Why, why don't I have a unicorn of a marriage? Cause it doesn't exist. They fight. I think when it comes to prayer for many of us, we have a unicorn in our minds. When I talk about the discipline of prayer, we immediately envision calloused knees where we've been at it for hours since three in the morning, like the great saints of God. And we, we envision a unicorn of prayer that includes no interruptions. And when we bow, we sense the presence of God and a a glory cloud comes down and fills the room. And we hear the angelic chorus. It's a unicorn. It does not exist. And the way I know it doesn't exist is because it didn't even exist for the son of God, Jesus. When we look at Jesus's life, he was hard pressed to find time for prayer. He had to sneak away into the mountains to get alone with God, spend a little time with his father. And guess what? He had a whole pack of two-year-olds called disciples tugging on his leg. In Mark chapter 2, we see that Peter come chasing him down. And the words that are used in the Greek of the gospel of Mark, when Peter and all the disciples are finding Jesus praying, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. Mommy, I want my Cheerios. That's the same scenario. They're looking for Jesus to control him. The Greek actually intonates to seize him. If the son of God was tempted away from prayer, by tugging two-year-olds called disciples, by a busy, hectic life, 
Talk about somebody who had a career that was relentless 24-7. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the great healer, the great preacher, the great teacher. From the time the sun rose to the time the sun went down. And even all through the night, Jesus was at work leading, teaching, providing, doing miracles. Jesus had this career path that would have tempted him away from spending time with his father. He had two-year-olds tugging at his pant legs, begging him for their attention. Jesus would have been as tempted as you and I are to believe that God heard him. The great detriment to our prayer lives is that your prayers aren't answered. Isn't it? The thing that keeps me from my knees the most often is when I find myself saying, I'm just going to lift up another prayer that doesn't get answered. Why? Why do that? Jesus was tempted in the same way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There on the cross, we hear Jesus tempted to believe that his father was abandoning him forever. We see the man Jesus struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane in prayer, in great struggle. There's got to be some other answer to this prayer. I don't want to go to the cross. And yet the father seems to remain silent. And Jesus says, your will be done. So, For a healthy prayer life, we must first abandon the unicorn that we're all looking for. Pray like Jesus prayed. He spent time with his father in the midst of interruptions, in the midst of a super busy career. He didn't experience angelic hosts and glory clouds upon him every time he went to his knees. By faith, our Savior prayed through his day, connected to the Father, whether it was verbalized or just in his mind, prayer. That is what prayer is. When the unicorn is reduced to reality, we find that we're praying at the gas pump at Fred Meyer. Father, thank you so much for this day. I just pray that you would guide me through this day. We're praying in the midst of our executives meeting. Lord, I do not like that guy. I think he's arrogant and I think he's a fool and that was a dumb decision. Give me wisdom right now as I trust. We're praying in the midst of having a spat with our wives. We're praying in the midst of little Johnny tugging on our pant leg to get us our Cheerios. Lord, help me not to kill him. We are praying. We are praying constantly nonstop. If we reduce the reality of prayer from a unicorn to the life of Jesus, we discern that praying unceasingly is actually A reality for us. It's that constant communion of our loving father. And we're his children spending our days with him. It's a wonderful life to be lived. Not demanding of us a dutiful drudgery in prayer. And I must callous my knees and have this experience. No, I'm at the gym throwing muscle ups. Praying for the coaches. Because I love them. I'm walking through the grocery store and she's got her head covering on with eight of those little guys following behind her. Lord, please let one of them become a church planner. And I'm not talking out loud to myself. None of us are. Right now we're in communion with the Lord. If we reduce prayer, the discipline of prayer from the unicorn to reality right now in the midst of this place, we are communing with our Father. Doesn't that birth desire for a greater disciplined prayer life though those set aside moments where you do intercede on a rhythmic basis for the people in your life where you are praying and asking god by faith 
to go before you, to do for you what you cannot do yourself, to surrender to his will. That's what prayer is. Let's simplify it. Let's make it real. Let's make it reflect the life of Jesus. And I think that as disciplined disciples, we will discover the great glory of praying and enjoying prayer in the gospel. Do you see how the gospel is a response? The gospel transforms all of these things. The gospel means that prayer is not a means of gaining God. Prayer is a means of just understanding what you've already been given completely in God. Entirely. We need to move on to the next one. Worship. Worship is a discipline. I'm going to read to you a scripture here. Paul says, and so dear brothers and sisters... I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Did you hear that? Paul says, worship, the discipline of worship. Give your bodies to God because of what he's done for you. Respond to God and what God has given to you. Respond by giving everything back to him. This is the discipline of worship. He says, let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way you are to worship him. That's Romans chapter 12 through 1. Worship goes much further than just singing songs on Sunday morning. We were created to worship. And much of the disciplines that the world exercises are disciplines of worship. If we worship status and money, the disciplines that get us status and money as an end, as our God are worshipful. It's the pouring out of your time and your energy and your life and your mental capacities and your desiring of joy to gain a little more in your paycheck, which there's nothing wrong with that. But if that is the end of your life, if that is your God, the disciplines you're exercising are worshipful disciplines of this small g God. And so Paul says, after chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans, in light of who this God is and what this God has done for you and how this God has given to you eternal salvation in Jesus, give your life to him. Give your minds to him. Give your hearts to him. Pour yourselves out to him. It's the right response of letruo, worship, Paul says. The discipline of continually, delightfully, sometimes dutifully, Turning our hearts over to God. That we might do the things in the world that God wants us to do for his glory. Do them well. Have what he wants us to have. So we were created to worship. We're all worshiping. What are we pouring our lives out for? For the disciple of Jesus, he is now pouring his life out for Jesus. And Jesus alone, everything else is subsumed under that life poured out for him. Let's talk a little bit about singing. Will, this summer, is going to be teaching us about worship and what singing is in the church. He'll be teaching in July uh, on his aspect of leadership in the church, singing, leading in singing. But I just want to put it this way. When we gather here on Sunday mornings, song is wholly unique. God has given music to the human species alone. You don't ever see a a, a tribe of bamboos, bamboos, baboons, there we go, (laughs) baboons, Busting out some grooves on drums and rhythm, howling in harmony and melody. (laughs) Why? Because music is uniquely human because God is a singing God and we are image bearers of him. Zephaniah 3.17 says that this morning God is singing over you. And when we sing to Jesus, we are responding with song, this unique gift that God has given of beats and grooves lined up, melodies and harmonies. 
that give back to him what he has given to us. And song is the natural overflow of a thankful, joyful heart. We're a musical family. I'm a guitar guy. My wife and I are both songwriters. She's a vocalist. And our children are being raised in a musical family. My, both my daughters are in piano. Joby's going to be uh, in piano very soon, even though he's fighting us to get into drums first, uh, which I'm avoiding that as long as possible. <laughs> and you cannot really walk into my house on any given day without some little chipper bird singing some little tune. They're just always walking around with singing this, singing that, humming this, humming that. I'm always humming something, thinking through something. There's always a piano going. There's always a guitar being strummed somewhere. It's a home of worship. Worship, just light. Now, here's a, here's a reality, the duty of worship. Because music is so broad, there are many different ways music is displayed in humanity, and there's many different preferences. There's what we do here, crank up the electric guitars, rock and roll. That's just kind of our DNA. That's kind of who we are. There's the acapella. There's the hymn. There's the African-American hip-hop. There's the Hispanic uh, trumpets and mariachi bands. There's all of these spreads of music and culture, right? And the duty of worship demands that we worship in song regardless of our preference, Regardless of our preference. And I've just, I guess, submitted to the fact that the, the war of worship preference in the church will go on forever. Too loud, too quiet, too fast, too slow. Too many guitars, not enough guitars. Too many vocalists, not enough vocalists. It's, it's across the spread. But the disciple who is growing in the duty of worship shows up and says, I did not like that song, but out of duty to Jesus, I'm going to raise my song to him. This is for him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to sing loudly to him because he is worthy. He is, he is my song. We also find that in the duty of worship, worship becomes warfare. Warfare. Saul, when Saul was becoming demonized, King Saul in the Old Testament... A demon was attached to him that made him go kind of crazy. And early on in his relationship with young David, who was a slamming guitar player, David would be called in by Saul to, to play his acoustic guitar, so to speak, for Saul and sing some love songs to God. And Saul's heart would be set at ease and the demon would flee when young David was worshiping. I have found, and you may find in your life, that the struggle with depression, frustration, fear... Hurt is oftentimes overcome by singing. Tears streaming down your face. I don't understand. I am angry and upset. I'm scared. I'm alone. I am sad. But out of duty in this discipline, I will sing a song to you by faith because you have promised that you are singing over me. It is in those moments where warfare occurs. Demons are set out. Depression and these things, they are usurped by praising God. And we find ourselves dutifully coming into the discipline of worship and song. And God responds to us by filling us and guiding us. And the longer you mature in Christianity, God will not allow you to worship experience. He won't. The first three years of my Christianity, I had no Bible and a lot of LSD. Residual effects, and I didn't know what I was doing, and God gave me experience after experience after experience after experience, and the older I got in the Lord, those experiences began to ebb off, and there was long seasons in my life, God, what am I doing wrong? Where are you? How come I don't feel you? 
The duty of delightfully worshiping God by faith. And there are moments. There are still moments now where God will meet me in those moments of song. The duty of worship in song. The gospel and worship. Let me say this before we move on. Worship is a direct response of thankfulness in seeing who God is. The more deeply we see God and the more deeply we trust the gospel that we are assured of salvation, that we are his sons and daughters, that we are loved. The only response is thankfulness, thankfulness. I watch my kids when we give them gifts. Just just the other day, going out playing baseball with Joby, just throwing the ball around and I don't remember what it was that we did. But the, the immediate overflow of that is just thankfulness. And Dad, I love you. Our Father is continually just laving, lavishing us with his love and his guidance, his provision and his care. Believing that and dutifully singing into that brings about that reality in a greater degree in our conscious experience. And so we respond by song to the gospel. Number three. This is a big one. The word. The word. I want to talk with you about the word's purpose, the word preached, and the word personally this morning. What is the purpose of reading the Bible? Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. There's four separate purposes. You could divide this up a number of different ways, but four separate purposes for those of you that are taking notes, why God has given us his word. Number one, information. God reveals information about himself, who we are, and what he does in the world. This is head. This is knowledge. The Bible is given to us. God's word is given to us for information. So we, as a discipline, read his word, not just the little... One verse sections that we just love, but the whole of it, we read for information about who God is, who we are, and what God is doing in the world. Number two, second purpose for the word and reading of the word is transformation. I talked about this at the beginning. As knowledge of who God is and who we are and what he's doing in the world through the gospel of Jesus fills our head, it begins to transform our hearts supernaturally. We are given this new identity and a new community. So reading the word is a means of greater transformation. Paul uses language like the washing of the water of the word in Ephesians chapter 5. Let your minds be renewed, Paul says in Romans chapter 12. So the discipline of reading the word is for transformation. Number three, and this is where it becomes a little bit abstract, but it is for our imaginations. What do I mean by that? When we read the Bible... We are being exposed to ultimate reality. And so our imaginations of our future and where we will be are given light. When we read about the coming kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. Our imaginations are being opened up to ultimate reality. And so the purpose of God's word and reading God's word is information that brings transformation, that opens up our imaginations, that sets us on this forward path to who we will be and who we are becoming and what life ultimately will be in Christ at the end of all things. And then finally, 
we see that God has given to us a fourth purpose of his word and reading his word is unification. Both with him and with each other. Much of what causes division in the body of Christ is a denial. One portion of a community of believers will deny a certain aspect of the Bible's teachings and they will divide from another portion of God's people that are interpreting God's word in a certain way. But when all of God's people, and that's why we're doing this membership series, all of our covenant members are coming together and we're saying, here's what we believe God says. Here's what we believe God is leading us to. We're all on the same page. We've all got the same playbook, the Bible. Oh, and the most important facet of our unification is as we read the Bible, it tells us that we've been made one with God, the father, God, the son, and God, the spirit. There is something metaphysical, something supernatural about that early morning quiet time. When you open up the word, there is a deeper conscious unification that is happening by the spirit through God's word as a human soul is engaged in communion with father, son, and spirit. And oneness is brought about. Oneness is absolute and already achieved, but you grow in your knowledge of that unity with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and in your unity with fellow brother, fellow sister, and believer in the body of Christ. Four purposes for the reading of God's word. How do we receive God's word? Two ways, personally and the word preached, the word preached. At this church, Every Sunday, we will be in the Bible. We take times like this where we do these topical series. For example, we've been in this seven-week series to do our membership series. When we get back in August to the Gospel of Mark, week by week, we will be gathering to sit under the word preached. We talk about at Taproot Church how Sunday gatherings are a priority for us as a discipline. And the argument that I make, I believe, is biblical. The early church, all the way through the epistles, gathered in a rhythmic way to listen to the teaching of the Bible. The very first Christians in the book of Acts were gathering in synagogues and in their homes. And in the synagogues, they were listening to preachers preach the word. Paul exhorts young pastor Timothy, preach the word in season, out of season, publicly read scripture. There is a discipline in gathering as the larger body of Christ, sitting under a sermon, receiving the word under called and qualified preachers. And it's not the preacher that brings about the persuasion. It's God's word. And there's just something powerful about all of God's people gathering on a rhythmic basis. We call these things, we, we illustrate these things as food and fuel for our lives. It's why we want all of our volunteers able to be in here the majority of the time. That's why we need more volunteers and Tapper kids and in all these different areas so that Everybody has ample opportunity to come and get their kind of weekly meal, so to speak. That's why the Sunday gatherings are so important. The word preached, a discipline. The third or the second way that we receive the word, though, is personally. And this is that dutiful discipline of reading large swaths of the Bible. In today's day and age, there are multiple Bible reading programs that we can all utilize. On our phones, you can read the Bible in a year. There's programs out there to read the Bible in 90 days. 
There's no reason for us not to have a systematized way of reading through the Bible. And yes, some days it is going to be duty. Some days you're going to miss and you're still going to go to heaven. And you need to read about that so that you know that. (laughs) Half the problem with people who are so condemned and so lost in their guilt is because they have forgotten. They've become short-sighted and they're not reading about how forgiven they are. As a response to the gospel. There is this personal reading that we do. And as this church continues to go forward. We don't have time today. But I really want to train you. In what I call contemplative reading. This is the ancient practice of reading large texts. Not only for information. But for relationship. Where a text speaks to you. I've been meditating in 1 John chapter 1. For a couple days now. And I just keep coming back to this profound reality that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Meditating on that, chewing on that, letting that guide my life, guide my decisions. The word personally. Let me talk about the gospel and the word. As I already said, we read the word to remind ourselves how much we're loved and who God is. But the gospel is on every page of the Bible. And so as disciples, there needs to be that dutiful discipline of learning how to read your Bibles. How do you read through the book of Leviticus? How do you make it through that monstrosity? Well, you get a couple commentaries. Number one, Danny, that's a little extra work. It's a little extra discipline to learn about who Jesus is in the book of Leviticus. Do you see how this circle grows? And all of us should be constantly growing in the word. And just like with prayer... Little Johnny is going to be tugging at your pant leg. I need my Cheerios. There must be that dutiful, disciplined way, whether it's late in the evening or early in the morning, where there's that quiet time of spending time with the Lord, prayerfully reading a text, gaining the information, letting it transform your heart, soaking in it, marinating in it as a discipline. Let's move on. We're almost done. Fourth discipline is community. I can't spend any time on this. We spent over an hour talking about community. There's an entire session committed to talking about community. But community is a vital discipline of healthy Christian discipleship. We cannot know Jesus without each other. We cannot make Jesus known without each other. So here, Taproot organizes in two specific ways, the Sunday gathering and missional community. Both of these are expected of our our members. That you are involved in a missional community and that you're at the Sunday gatherings. That it's a priority for you. That it's something that you are growing in. And sometimes it is. It's going to be a duty. But it is a duty that leads to delight. Listen to that other session. If you didn't listen to that other session on being in community, your interviews will actually ask you. Your interviewers, when you get ready to sign up and do your interviews, they're going to say, let's talk about your Sunday gathering attendance. Let's talk about where you're serving at the Sunday gathering. And let's talk about missional community. Now, if your behavior is the basis, you're going to say, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. Licentiousness. Or, I'm in this missional community. I serve on this many teams. I'm at every Sunday gathering. (laughs) Legalism. Love is going to say, wait a second. I want to grow in the gospel. Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed. He had to leave eternal community so that I could have community. I want to know what that means. The only way you can know what that means is by being in community. Wow. 
That's why Pastor Danny and the elders are making a big deal out of this. Because the son of God was forsaken from community so that I could have eternal community. I love you, Jesus. Show me more of that. Teach me more of that. Bring me into more of that. That's love. That's the way we would have our members respond when we talk about these things as far as being involved in community and committed to community, growing in these things. Finally, this is our final one. Obedience. This is a broad discipline as a response to the gospel. And this is the most crucial factor where our obedience does not gain us God's favor. We have God's favor because of Jesus' obedience. But because Jesus obeyed, we now want to obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. There's no exegetical gymnastics. There's no scratching our heads. Hmm, I wonder what he meant by that. (laughs) If you love me, obey my commandments. And so I summarize obedience to Jesus in one word. Repentance. Repentance. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of Wittenberg, which birthed the reformation of the church. We'll talk about all this geeky, nerdy church history stuff next week. The very first thesis that he proposed was that all of life is a life of repentance. So the Christian discipline of obedience includes repentance. Again, we think of a unicorn. Repentance is this moment of Seeing everything so clearly and turning from it and becoming completely free. It doesn't exist that way. Repentance is just that slow, monotonous, normal life of seeing something, understanding that it's been dragging us down, and then walking into God's love. We view repentance as, okay, I'm going to lace up my bootstraps, tighten up my belt. I'm going to get it right for you, God, because I'm repenting. Biblical repentance is a response to God's love. I've been deeply wrong. I've been misguided. I've been deceived. I've been arrogant. I've been prideful. I've been lying. I've been lust-filled. I am all of these things and more before you. And I just receive your love right now. And I trust you to transform me. And I respond to it by obeying you. That's repentance. I delightfully, with joy and without fear, run into my Father's arms who holds me. And never lets me go and never will let me go in the midst of my sin. All of life in the discipline of a disciple of Jesus is obedient repentance. Number two, under this rubric of obedience is serving. Serving. Let me read to you the text. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. The arenas for Christian service are virtually inexhaustible. All of us should view our careers and our workplace as a place where we're serving the Lord. Paul actually says in the book of Colossians that we serve our masters as unto the Lord. And so service, foot washing, 
humble labor that goes sometimes seen, more often than not unseen, is a direct disciplined response to seeing that the Savior of the world served us by humbling himself, becoming a man, living in our place, dying our death, resurrecting for our victory, and assuring us of all of that so that now we can go and serve knowing that we will be rewarded. Jeremiah chapter 31 There is reward for your work, for your labor, for your service. Now, practically speaking, I want to draw this into our church here. I can't go around with a little notebook following you around at your jobs. Oh, he served here and he didn't serve here. You can't do that, right? But what we have here at this church is we have a mobile setting. And so as an aspect of our serving, we're asking and we're expecting that all of our members will be contributing to this Sunday gathering somehow. Now, of course, there's going to be caveats to that. Mamas with brand new babies can't be hauling music gear on Sunday morning. It's just not possible, right? But we are asking and expecting that our Sunday members, that our covenant members will be serving on a Sunday morning team. This is a a visual way of saying, you know what, this is my family. And if we think of ourselves as a family, this is actually appropriate. When I get done with dinner, we all have our chores. You are going to clear the table. You are going to uh, wash the dishes. Joby, you're going to go out and clean up all the Joe's dog poop out in the yard. (laughs) I'm going to sweep and vacuum on house cleaning day. And when we all pitch in as a family with a song in our heart, Thankfully singing that we have life and a house to clean. It's a joyful experience and many hands make little effort. Is that the way that statement goes? Light work. You guys get what I'm saying. (laughs) Many hands make light work. I have heard this in every church, including ours. It's virtually impossible to get people to serve in the kids ministry. We're constantly in need of more help. Here we are every Sunday, every Sunday, anywhere between 80, sometimes and upwards of 120 people will come in here. That's only going to continue to grow. And while we are mobile, we need as many hands as we can get to help. And we are asking both members and non-members to sign up on one of the many teams. Show up here and help the guys pack gear with the setup and teardown team. Learn media back there so that you can... Push the slide button so that you can, uh, you know, run the slides for the people. Taproot kids, Roberta and Steve, I, I want to protect them. They are committed, doing a wonderful job, and they're in there every Sunday. Every Sunday. There's no reason that the young couples in this church who don't have kids can't step up and say, you know what, I want to start learning the ropes. There's got to be this response to the gospel that says, Jesus gave up everything. He washed my feet. I am willing to serve. I am willing to get involved. I am willing to help. And guys, if we want to see our church grow, which we do, if we want to see more disciples made, all of us as covenant members and non-members as well, who are considering membership, we are saying, look, this is my team. This is my family. And I want to bring more people into this family. And the only way to bring more people into this family is to make sure that these things are going well so that the gospel can be presented and I can invite people into these things. So that's our expectation. That's what we're asking. Serving. It's a dutiful discipline. And I can almost guarantee you, 
Much like going and getting your workout done or just getting through doing the dishes. If there's one thing that I hate in life, it's doing the dishes. But it just looks so good afterwards. I guarantee you, I, I've never, I've never, ever heard anybody who is committed to sacrificial service, signed up for a team, walked out of Taproot Kids going, I hated that. <laughs> Nobody has ever walked away from being selfless and inconvenienced and serving in a selfless way like Jesus going, well, I'll never do that again. That was terrible. Ever. Approaching it. I don't want to do that. This is an inconvenience. It's so hard. I'm not sure I like this. Uh, The classic Christian, you know, excuses. I'm not called to that ministry. What does that mean? At Taproot, we call baloney. <laughs> we call that baloney. And we ask as a family, look, take this whole pastor parishioner thing away as a family, as a family. Guys, we're in this together. That's what this whole membership series is about. We're in this together. And it's my job to make sure that we know that we're in it together and we need the help. And so this is a standard of service that we're setting up. Number three, giving. This is another area. These two As far as the disciplines, this is where we really, the rubber hits the road in Christianity. Because we have to look at our budgets and we have to look at our calendars and how we're prioritizing our disciplines. You, I guarantee you, your checkbook will tell you what you value the most. It will, period. And so giving is one of those areas that is so hard to address unless you absolutely believe the gospel and the Bible. Because without timidity, without fear, without shame, I can stand up here and I can say that the Old Testament saints were required to give 23% of their income, 23% of their income. Then we get to the New Testament where there's absolutely no teaching on what percentage we should give. And so the mantra is, how much should I be giving? We teach generous, sacrificial, joyful giving. And the New Testament teaches all of it. Did he just say what I think he said? (laughs) When Jesus points out exemplary New Testament giving, he looks at the widow, a little lady that has two pennies. And all of these rich religious people are watching and they're giving of their tithe. They're giving three, five, seven. Some of them are giving a whole 10%. Some of them, because they were religious Pharisees, were giving 23%, exactly according to the law. And Jesus says, hey, look at her. She just dropped in two pennies. She gave everything she has. That's it. The Apostle Paul looks at the Macedonian church and he doesn't say to them, hey guys, I'm going church planting. I need to raise some funds. You guys need to be giving at a minimum 10% because that's what tithe means, 10%. No, Paul says out of their poverty, the, the, the word there is out of their absolute lack. They had nothing. They gave me everything to go and serve. Now, here is where the, the world of numbers comes in. We do not teach a 10% tithe at Taproot Church because the New Testament doesn't. I grip my teeth every time I start teaching on this stuff because as a Bible teacher and as a church leader, I wish I had a verse that said, Thou shalt in your disciplined, dutiful Christianity of giving, give 10%. And there's nothing in the New Testament that says that. If you never give another dime for the rest of your life, you are holy and pure. You are also eternally rich. Because Jesus gave up everything for you. He who was rich became poor 
so that we who are poor may become rich. Only when the glory of what Jesus has given up comes in and the truth that we really own nothing. Read through the book of Ecclesiastes and think about your budget. It's all going to end. It's all going to burn. Think about what you're prioritizing. The New Testament teaches that the healthy disciplines of giving of a healthy disciple are sacrificial. And I want to warn you that our notions of sacrifice in an affluent culture like ours are laughable. They're laughable. What we consider sacrifice in light of the sacrifice of the Son of God are, are without comparison. And we respond not with shuddering and, oh, I better be giving more so I'm pleasing to God. No, we go to the gospel. Lord, set my heart free. I am chained to these things. On a practical side of things, Taproot is right at this stage, and I'm going to be very honest about where we're at. We have hit a plateau. And I am fine leading us in this place. I will do everything I can to lead us out of this place to a place where we're seeing more disciples being made, more impact in the city. But what that requires is more volunteers serving, more intentional mission on our parts as a response to the gospel, and it requires money. Pastor Jim and I and a number of guys right now are praying through this building situation. We have found a building, but our budget is sitting right, right here, right here. And so as we go through the summer, what we see every year, and you can look over the last seven years of this church, it goes, Whoo, and then the summer comes, it's like, crash. Dan pulls out all of his hair for three months, and then September comes around, and then crash the next year. As members of this church, set a mark. And here's where 10% becomes helpful because 10% hurts. 10% is one of those numbers. Tithe does mean 10%. I'm not trying to make a biblical case for a New Testament tithe. Don't hear me wrong. I'm saying for the sake of our deceived hearts, 10% is that number where you find yourself going, oh man, that is actually going to cost me. That's going to cost me a lot. That's going to cost me getting this and getting that and having this and having that. But you're giving to the greater good and you're doing it as a response to the gospel. If you're hearing this as me pressure cooking you or hearing me emotionally, you know, weaseling in there, don't give. But as members, as covenant members... Our expectation is going to be you are looking forward to a a definitive mark that you set. And that 10% mark is a good mark to go for. And beyond that, it ebbs and flows. Some of us in here financially right now are doing just fine. You're doing great. That's a season for you to be giving more because God is blessing you. Some of us in here are in a season where you're just barely skimping by. My wife and I lived there for years and years and years. And I wish I could tell you that we gave 10% and God met us right where we were and it overflowed. No, there were nights where we didn't have groceries. We gave 10%. We didn't know what we were going to eat. We would get home and literally there would be a sack of white Idaho potatoes on our balcony. And we would go in and we would eat potatoes and butter for dinner to the glory of God. And guess what? I'm alive. My wife is alive. We have three kids. I don't want to lie to you guys and sit here and say, if you set this sacrificial mark, it's all going to come back. No, it hurts. You don't get to get the extra Starbucks coffee. It's hard to figure out how you're going to pay for your hairdo. 
And none of these things are wrong. I want you to understand that these things are not wrong for us, guys. Getting our hair done and having the things that we want to be done in our lives. Having the Starbucks coffee. Being able to go out to eat. Having the things that we want to drive. Living in the house. None of those things are wrong. None of them. They're all glorious gifts from God. But as disciples of Jesus, are we over-prioritized on this side of things? And that's, that's between you and Jesus. This is one of those areas where, again, I wish I had this kind of, this, like, metrics that I could just sit down with you and say, okay, here's the marks. Check, 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 check. And you'd all become a bunch of legalistic Pharisees or licentious, selfish non-givers. I give so much to the church and try to control the church. I'm not giving anything. This is just too much. Love is, God, you gave everything for me. Eternal life is mine. You own me, including my money. How much of this do you want me to keep this week for paying my bills, taking care of my children, enjoying my life, getting my hair done? Pastor Danny and the other elders are all committed to a 10% mark. The expectation is that we're moving towards a 10% mark if we're not already there in our giving as covenant members. Lord, I want to be able to do that. And then go for it. Go for it. And watch what happens. We can talk more about giving. Pastor Jim, I believe, will be teaching on giving uh, towards the end of this summer as well. The final one, and then we're done, is mission. Mission. The obedience of multiplying the mission of Jesus. It's a discipline. This entails being in relationships with people that don't know Jesus, loving people, praying for people, serving people, looking at every place that you go into, workplace, vocation, uh, gym, library, grocery store, you are going in there sent as an ambassador to love people, pray for people, and tell people about Jesus. Mission includes multiplication. That's why we want to multiply churches. That's why we want to multiply missional communities. That's why we want to multiply disciples. That's why we want to buy a building so that we can see an increase in the number of people that are being discipled and then send them out to plant more churches. Everything is about multiplication when it comes to the mission of Jesus, but it is a dutiful discipline. And I'll say this as I close. Mission and evangelism is always a direct result of believing the gospel. And the way I illustrate it is this. When we watched the Super Bowl last year, and we watched our beloved Seahawks crush them. I mean absolutely crush them. Was there... Was there ever a single moment in that entire game when the touchdown went down and we were all like, maybe towards the end, oh, another touchdown, great. No. Every, I, was in a, I was in a group of people, we were watching them down at the office, and every, every single great event that happened for our victory, we all stood and praised and proclaimed. How did we proclaim? Did you see that? Of course they all saw it. Did you see that? That was amazing. I saw that. Did you see that? We evangelized what we saw. And then what happened? The next day, we were all Seahawks evangelists. Everybody had seen the game, but everybody at the workplace, did you see that last night? That was amazing. Right? And nobody was scratching their head saying, I think I need to go tell people about what I saw last night in the game. It was an overflow of seeing something great and beautiful and wonderful, right? And tears and all that. The Mariners have actually got some bats this year too, by the way. So it's, it's just going good all over the place. Kind of. Evangelism and mission. And here's, here's the key. 
When you see Jesus, when you see him and you love him and you are loved by him, there's no dutiful, there's no, I got to get out there and be a good Christian and share Jesus with people. It just is who you are. Jesus is on your lips all the time and not any sort of weird way. It is just who you are. Jesus is just present in that moment. And it, this will manifest, evangelism and mission manifest in each individual and each individual missional community based on the gift set and the personalities. There will be times of dutiful discipline. And you know when they are. The Holy Spirit has like opened the door wide open. The person is basically saying, tell me who Jesus is. And you're like, oh. Those are those moments where only the gospel can restore you. You go back to Jesus. Jesus, I totally chickened out. Well, that's why I died for you. That's why I accept you. You're not saved based on how many people you tell about me, how many people come to Christ through you. That's the direction that this church is going. We want to be a cultural renewing force in the south end of the Seattle Metroplex. The Bible is our standard of authority and ultimate reality that reveals to us the disciples God, who is triune, Manifest in the Son, both man and God, substitutionarily punished on the cross for our sin, resurrected eternally alive. This gospel, this good news is the center and the foundation of our life. Through this gospel, we have been given an entirely new identity. We are adopted children of the king, baby queens, baby kings awaiting his return to inherit an eternal land that will never rust, that moth cannot destroy. We have been saved both individually and into a community. We are the temple. We are the body of Christ intertwined one with another and one with our God And we respond to all of this with the disciplines of prayer and worship, the word, community, and obedience to grow more in these things and multiply these things. Father, we pray now and we ask God that you would stir us to respond. Lord, where these disciplines strike a chord or maybe even cut into our soul, Would you reveal to us where we have lost sight and become short-sighted of the gospel? Lord, we don't want to be a licentious church, throwing our hands up in the air saying, I don't need to do any of these things. I can't do any of these things. Instead, would you so reveal Jesus to us that we long to grow? Lord, guard us from becoming a legalistic church. You know that I've been nervous about that through this entire membership series, especially this session this morning. We are not made right by how much we give and how much we serve. We are not accepted based on our prayers and our worship. But Lord, these are healthy responses and we want our covenant members to be operating in a healthy way, responding to you. And so help us to shepherd and to lead well in accord with your word that love Love from you and love back to you would be our response. And because we love you, we would obey you and we would serve and we would give with joy. More than anything, Lord Jesus, as we close this series, I pray that you would unite us as the best of friends and the closest of family. 
I pray for every person that will be drawn into our community, into this family in the coming years. Jesus, that they would walk into a community that is richly, deeply in love with you and loving each other. Moving in the same direction, slowly, oftentimes with zigs and zags, but moving forward towards you. Bless us as a church, God. Bless our members and just guide us and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's a wrap, folks. We can do Q&A here for a little bit. Next week, we'll do a little addendum. We're going to talk about what is Reformed theology, and we'll talk about who Acts 29 is. We're toying around with the idea of doing an entire Sunday committed to Q&A. So far, I've only gotten two questions. So we will not do Q&A unless I get some more questions from you guys. So with that said, we can do a little Q&A right now, and then we'll wrap up with worship this morning. Any questions on the disciplines or any aspect of this membership series that we have talked about so far? I have knocked it out of the park. There's no questions at all. You guys all get it. (laughs) Okay. If there's no questions, yeah, Micah. Oh, man. Yeah. Micah, Micah asks a great question about where are the scriptural encouragements for growing out of duty into love? So the New Testament gives to us lists that include things like repentance and turning from particular lifestyles to new lifestyles. There's in almost virtually every New Testament epistle you're going to see that there is a response to the gospel that looks like duty, but is growing people in love. Let me give to you just, just one. I'll read from Ephesians chapter 4. So Paul says, now this I testify in the Lord. He's talking about, um, previously he's laid out our predestined salvation, the unity of Jew and Gentile in the church. Now he starts laying out all of these duties. And what you'll see in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Romans is Paul first gives to us the knowledge of who God is, what God has done in the gospel, and what God is doing through the gospel. And then all of a sudden in Romans 12 and Ephesians chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 3, it's like e-break gets hit. Lofty theology, and now here's how you respond to it. So here's a section in Ephesians 4. Paul says, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So you're repenting from walking in the the way that the Gentiles walk. Why? They're darkened in understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. They're callous. I'm going to read through this briefly. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greed, all these things. That's not the way you learn Christ, though. And now he says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Here's the language that the New Testament uses of duty that leads to the light. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed or put on, as he says in Colossians, put on Christ in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I could open up to virtually anywhere of the New Testament epistles, particularly in the Pauline corpus or in the books that Paul wrote. And I could find various sections where Paul talks about the duty of turning from old ways of living. We, we never served selflessly before we became Christians. 
Now, in light of seeing Jesus serving us so selflessly, our response is to emulate him in obedience to him, and we dutifully go out and serve. And the verse doesn't go on and say, and you're going to wake up the next morning feeling so good. But it is that experience. There is an experiential reality to our Christianity that I think all of us are longing for. And so getting up in the morning and dutifully being in the word, receiving from the text, you, you, may, you may trudge your way through Leviticus, but somewhere through that day, even just having spent that time in the word, that duty in the word will lead to delight. You'll find that your day is more centered. Your perspective is more clear. Your heart is more open. So over and over and over, the duties are laid out before us. The language that the New Testament uses is put off old ways, put on new ways. But all of that is always prefaced by two or three chapters of what God has done in Christ for us. Great question. Terrible answer. Great question. (laughs) Any other questions? Any other thoughtful questions that we'd want to tackle here this morning. Devin asks a fantastic question. How do you address the lack of service in the New Testament church? So, first let me say that we're addressing it in this membership series. And I have addressed it by giving you the cultural framework in which this problem has developed. The baby booming church, God bless them, hard working, big shebang pulling off event church consumer-based church. What the baby boomers did well was they, they thrived in capitalistic America and created marketing schemes to give us our goods that we want. And pastors learned from these schemes, I will create an environment where the church is consuming a product, which is, for the great ones, good public speaking, which is the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. And an event environment that is conducive to their needs and their wants. That has, it was a new phenomenon within the church because the church had existed so marginalized for so long that the idea of big, huge events suited to the needs of people was, no, we need to survive. We need to find a way to get some food and try not to get killed. Okay. Now with this increasing marginalization of Christianity, I don't know what's going to happen with the mega church thing. I think it's an amazing phenomenon. But what we're seeing sociologically and demographically is that the church is actually not diminishing in the United States like a lot of the stats of the last decade have said, but she's transforming. And so what we're seeing is smaller churches, but those churches are made up of believers that are 100% in. They're showing up saying, you know what? The church is the church and I'm part of it. I'm part of a missionary people and I have a role to fulfill. So I think in addressing it, Devin, men and women that don't serve in the church, first of all, understanding that there's no condemnation. I think that sometimes these sessions or a question like that is answered with, well, because everybody's lazy and they need to repent of their sin. No, that's not true. We Americans are not lazy and 
most of us sitting in this room all have that longing. We want to, we want to be contributing. But when we look at the reality of our calendars and our lives, we're like so overwhelmed. So it's not a matter of condemning. It's a matter of correcting priority. By saying, do you understand who the church is? Because when you understand who the church is, the church is not a place to just come and necessarily consume. Now, don't get me wrong. For many, in the early seasons of Christianity, the church is a hospital. It's where you are coming to just sit. For three years, my primary service, when I first got saved, well, not three years, about two years, my primary ministry was sitting in the back of the church, pushing the space bar, Making sure that everybody could see the slides. I was the slide guy. Pastor Danny was the slide guy. That was my main way of serving the church. I couldn't do anything else. And so I think it's a matter of prioritizing and understanding who the church is. And then addressing, if you understand who the church is and what God has done, how are you prioritizing your life and your calendar around contributing to that joyfully? Giving into that. Making sacrificial volunteer work and giving into that. And I think what we're going to see, I'm about 80% sure on this, and the next 20 years are going to either prove me right or wrong. And there's a number of us that are thinking this way. I think what we're going to see is large swaths of cultural Christianity disappear. Politically, it's already happened. Everybody recognizes that with President Obama, the idea of a Christian evangelical, evangelical United States is gone, right? And that's not coming back. We're not going to live in, in the ideal Christian state that we've lived in in the United States like we have in the past 150 years. That's over. We are in post-Christian America. And so what we will see is that through membership series like these and multiple Leaders that rise up and teach these things and then bodies of believers that respond to these things. There will be this what I've called grassroots revival in the church. And it will look like men and women coming to grips with, you know what? I've been living this way and I've had this understanding about the church. It's a Sunday thing that I do sometimes. But now I'm beginning to understand that I am incorporated into a body. I've been saved into a community. I've been put on mission. Now I'm seeing the sacrifice of God for me, which opens my heart to willingly sacrifice for him. And we will see grassroots upheavals of real, vibrant, life-giving bodies of believers in, in communities just like this all across the land. And when we're praying for revival, we're praying for this type of thing to sprout up in every sort of sub-tribe and every sort of culture throughout the land. And I believe that Taproot is pioneering that. I, I'm fully persuaded of that. 100%. And then we're going to see the demise of cultural Christianity. You're going to see that those that that the church remains just something to consume or give to. Um, there's enough of an engine of Christianity in the church that it'll probably go on for another generation or so. But if we're going to be eternal creatures, let's think about legacy. What kind of church are we going to leave to? I got to know what kind of church I'm going to leave to my great-great-grandkids if Jesus doesn't return. And trust me, I think about it all the time. So I think it's a matter of understanding I think it's a matter of clarity of understanding who we are, not condemning, and then being fully cognizant of the gospel, having the gospel open up our eyes to who we are to be in him, and, and then feeling the pain of going for it, the duty of, whoa, I'm going to give this much this month. I hope the Lord provides.
and he will. Well, I'm going to give of my time and I'm going to serve in a capacity that I'm not super comfortable with, but Jesus died for me and I'm going to go for it. And, and watch how God multiplies that. Great question. One more or we'll wrap it up. Any other questions? Okay. Will, why don't you come on up, brother, and we're going to close in a song here. You know, of all the disciplines of Christianity that I find the most difficult to walk in, it's the discipline of joy. I tend to be a pretty pessimistic, um, serious, furrowed brow, angry guy most of the time. But the gospel confronts that. And so through this summer, you guys, as we're praying, as we're considering membership, as we're, you guys can go online and sign up, as we're thinking about the fall and as we're praying about a building, the main thing that I want our body to really explode with is just the joy of the gospel, the great joy that today we are accepted, we are loved. God has positioned us in a unique time and place in history to do a unique work for his glory, and we get to do it together. That's an amazing thing. That's a wonderful gift that he's giving to us. And it's not just us, guys. It's all the churches of the South End trying to unite all the churches here in the South End to let God work through us in such a way that that the nations will look on and say, this is the hand of God. And that our great, great, great grandchildren will inherit a church um, that is so deeply in love with Jesus and so joyful, so joyful. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that today, whether we give or we don't give, whether we serve or we don't serve, Lord, whether we're living a life of fullness or lack today, whether our prayer life is deep and full or non-existent, whether the mission of our life is bearing fruit or it seems that we're just plowing hard endless ground Lord Jesus we are yours and so multiply us shape us and form us for your glory Lord as covenant members of Taproot Church we want to love each other until the end and we want to love you till the end and we want to we want to see others come to know you so as we worship you today God there's amazing grace for us Amazing, amazing grace. There's a summer in front of us to go enjoy the sunshine, to fellowship with one another. Lord, there's a fall coming, should you tarry, a fruitful harvest. We pray for a building. God, we just ask that you would continue to guide us in every single way. And I pray that you would touch each of these precious souls, God, that they would be drawn towards membership, that they would step out of whatever they've been in and commit a thousand percent into this place in this life and that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all sing.